Well, it is good for us to be in worship together here in the West Auditorium, the East Auditorium, Lovington, and those at home, online, or wherever you are at. Uh, if you are newer with us in any of those locations, my name is Brian. I uh, have the privilege of being one of the pastors here and looking at God's Word with you today, where we will be in Matthew chapter 11. And so I'd invite you to turn in a Bible there where we will be. And um, if you are newer with us, a little bit about me, or maybe you're not new but don't know this, uh, about me, that once upon a time, that part of, you could say, uh, the rhythm of my life, a little pun intended here, was that um, I used to play the drums. And where I learned to play the drums actually was as a high school kid uh, in these little like hole-in-the-wall blues bars in the middle of downtown Columbia, South Carolina. I think it was kind of one of those like raise your children up in the way they should go and they shall not depart from it type uh, approach that I had. So anyway, um, so one of the things you learn pretty quickly when it comes to the drums is you could say that there is a, a difference between hitting the drums and playing the drums. In that hitting the drums, well, that's something that a three-year-old does when they get their very first drum set. And it sounds something like this. Wow, okay. Uh, that was a courtesy clap if I've ever heard one. Because that's awful, right? Uh, you know, it, the sound of drums crashing and clashing, it's uh, essentially it makes, if you think about it, uh, drums make a really good gift for the children of people you don't like. It's like an audible torture chamber that you're uh, cursing them with. And so, yes, there is a big difference between hitting the drums and playing the drums. In that, in playing the drums, what we want to have is, you could say, the right balance between both hitting the drums and not hitting the drums. That the music is made, the rhythm is felt, actually you could say, uh, between the hits. And so, okay, that's better, maybe. And so, the rhythm, the beat, the music, you could actually make the case is not as much about the hits as much as it is about what they call in music the rests. The rests, the, the space between the hits, the margin, uh, the time between where we hear the hits is really where we uh, understand uh, the rhythm. And so we continue our series here that we started last week entitled Recalculating, where we are looking at what does it look like to recalculate our plans according to God's plans? And specifically here today, we're going to look at what does it look like to recalculate our life, not just towards the noise, but towards the rests. Uh, the rest that God has designed for our lives to recalculate in that direction. And so um, when it comes to, uh, you could say, passages in the Bible on rest, I would argue that if not the most popular, one of the most popular verses in the whole Bible or passages is what we're going to look at here today. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Just three verses, uh, but says a lot right out of the mouth of Jesus. He says it this way. Matthew 11, starting verse 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
He says, take my yoke, or, or my way, take my yoke, my way upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke, my way is easy, and my burden is light. Okay, and so he's writing this at a time where there was a lot of burdens on the people of God based on some misunderstandings of the noise uh, that they thought they had to uphold in order to uh, follow God. And so Jesus is correcting some of that uh, in this setting, and I think he wants to correct it for us as we think about what does it mean for us, you could say, to rest. Uh, how would you define rest? Like, you know, just, okay, if you wanted to get some rest, how would you go about doing that? How would you go about getting what you might call a little R&R, some rest and relaxation? Maybe you uh, find that in, you could say, taking a day off, or maybe more specifically, taking off for a vacation. Uh, or, or maybe you just would say it's in an overall slowing down. But for whatever you might answer, I think we have to ask, are these really what Jesus had in mind when he was talking about, you know, rest, like rest for our souls kind of rest? Because I think we've all experienced the inverse of rest on all of these occasions. Uh, for example, vacation. I think all of us have been on a vacation where we came back more tired than when we started off on the trip, ironically. Uh, for example, like a trip to Disney World. Um, I'm not sure restful would be my definition of the experience I had. We went. It was great, wonderful experience. But rest? I don't know if that's the word I'd tie to it. Uh, it might be more like uh, what Jim Gaffigan, uh, the comedian, says, you know, going to Disney in August, which we are now in. He says going to Disney in August is like standing in the line of a DMV while standing on the surface of the sun. Like, not restful, right? Uh, and so you might be like, you know what? I already knew that wasn't restful. I know better when it comes to my vacations. And for me, my idea of going on uh, some R&R on a vacation is like the beach. You know, where I can go and, as it, the Zac Brown band says, the only worry in the world is the tide going to reach my chair. Like, that's my kind of R&R. That's my kind of rest where I don't have to do anything but lay face down on a whatever, with no place to go, nothing to do, nowhere to be. Um, but you might argue that the anxieties that you thought maybe you were leaving behind can ironically, with all this time and space, actually be the thing that fills your mind as you lay there on the beach or wherever it is that you might find yourself. And so rest seems to elude us even when we're doing nothing. And for you, you might say, okay, that, that's exactly why I just don't go anywhere. Like when it comes to my idea of rest, it is uh, simply at home, but with just that idea of slowing down. You know, less commitments, less places to be, less places to do. When I slow down, that's where I find rest. But the irony is that when we think about that kind of, you know, ascription to our life, that pretty well defines the last five months doesn't it? You know, less commitments, less places we have to be, less places we have to go. And so with all of that in mind, let me ask you, how rested do you feel right now? I mean, that's what we're right. We've slowed down, but do you feel rest in your soul? And so it would seem that Jesus must have meant something quite different in his definition of rest than what we tend to define it as. 
And so what does Jesus' word and the rest of God's word say about us recalculating our life, not towards our definition of rest, but towards his definition of rest? And so we'll start with the first usage of the word in the Bible is actually in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We see uh, this first usage of the word rest in that in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God creates everything, heavens and earth, he does it in six days. And then in Genesis 2 chapter, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 2 verse 2, it says that on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. God rested or rested in all that he had accomplished which then later becomes actually a command for us. In Exodus, it says, remember the Sabbath day, that's the word for this day of rest, Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is to be a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So the first place that we see rest takes place is in a day of rest or Sabbath. A day of Sabbath, that's the first place where God calls us to recalculate our definition of rest. Now, at first blush look, the idea of Sabbath or rest might just look like a day off. It might just look like a day of simply not working, of doing something different than we'd otherwise do the other six days of the week. But that is only half of the equation because half is, yes, not working, but the flip side of that coin is how do you understand, what do you believe about the not working? Not only are you not working, but what do you understand about your not working is that really in your not working, it is in your commitment to not do more, make more, accomplish more, provide more, that whatever it is you're not doing, you are also, on the flip side, declaring that the reason you do that is because you trust both that day and all the days of your week that it is actually the Lord who is at work on your behalf. It is the Lord who ultimately provides. That is the full meaning of Sabbath. On a day that you could quite possibly be getting ahead or getting caught up, you in your not working, not providing more, not working more, you proclaim that the Lord your God is the one who is providing for you. And so that's what you're declaring. You're saying, God, I trust that you provide in my trust to say I'm gonna actually choose to not work. Even though there's more I could be done or more I could do, I'm gonna clock out, you could say, uh, but not just clock out, but, but with that clock in, dial into the reality that God, you provide. And so there's more that we could say about this, but really it's why traditionally within the history of the church, worship services have taken place for the most part on weekends, either in some traditions on Saturdays, some on Sundays, or in our case and several others, either or. That it's this idea that, again, not in all cases, but traditionally it's something different than the typical Monday through Friday work. And so we, we abstain from work in order to tap into the presence of worship to instead of work we replace that with worship of who God is giving him worth for all that he is and all that he is doing to provide rather than ourselves it's actually one of the uh, ten commandments it's the fourth of the ten commandments and the beauty of it like all of God's commands is it's not designed to be a burden but designed to be a gift it's a gift of rest not just from work but a deeper meaning of resting in God's providence. 
Or as Jesus would later say, he says, man was not made for the Sabbath, meaning uh, this is what Jesus was challenging, offering that the, the religious leaders of the day were trying to fit man into this mold that was anything but restful in God and said that the Sabbath was created for man. It was it designed to be a gift from God, both rest from work, but at the same time resting in who God is. Abraham Heschel, in his book, uh, The Sabbath, uh, simply titled, I love the way he puts it. He says that the world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. It was on the seventh day that God gave the world a soul. Or, as Jesus says in our passage, come to me, come to me, and you will find rest for your soul. And so Sabbath is the first way that we observe living in that God-designed rest. Okay? Another way that we recalculate our plans towards God's plans, we recalculate our definition of rest, and here's one that might surprise you, is actually that in tithing. Tithing is a form of rest. The word tithe, it literally means a tenth. And it's this understanding and this belief that based on the reality that God has given us 100% of everything that we understand that we have, then we then return to him, because he gave it to us in the first way, we return to God the first 10%, often through scripture called the first fruits. The first 10% is returned back to God. And you might say, okay, fair enough. I know what a tithe is. I've heard that before. But um, time out. How is that restful? Help me understand how that has to do with rest. Well, once again, it all comes down to your definition of rest, in that the definition that God has for rest, in a word, what it means to rest in God, is synonymous with the word trust. It's all about trust. It's all about where our trust and our rest at a deepest level ultimately relies. Does it, just like with the Sabbath and taking a day away from work, in, it comes to our resources, do we really rest in God's providence? Jesus paints this in, in an in a interaction, in a teaching, in Mark chapter 10, where he's teaching um, the crowds, and there's children there, and his disciples, and he's teaching them, and he says, he uses the children as an illustration, and he says that you, in order to receive fully the kingdom of God, you must become like a child. Maybe you've heard the term childlike faith. And what he means by that is not a childish, immature faith, but ironically, actually a very mature, a very, uh, in the same way that a child would be fully dependent and fully trusting upon a parent to provide, God is saying that a childlike faith is fully trusting and fully confident, fully resting in God to provide as a heavenly father. And so with this teaching, as Jesus wraps this up, he's with his disciples, and uh, a young man comes rushing up to Jesus to know more. He wants to say, okay, how do I enter into the, the kingdom of God more? How do I inherit eternal life, was this young man's exact words. And so Jesus, seeing all of this, uh, and seeing that this young man, his trust, he's struggling with this point, his trust is resting in his money, it says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. He says, it said, well, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And so I love that primer to the conversation that Jesus, that the posture towards this young man is he loves him, he cares for him. You could say that Jesus wants something for him, not something from him. And so Jesus, verse 20, he looks at him, he loves him, and he says, ah, one thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, 
and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And so what's happening here? Jesus is just recognizing what is true of this young man, that his trust, his rest, was in his money rather than in God. And so Jesus, he goes on, verse 23, it says that Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, they were amazed at his words. But then Jesus said again, and anytime there's repetition in God's word, it's a sign of added emphasis. It's like putting it in italics and bold. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, he's just explain, he really is just exposing what makes sense. The natural reality that we all face that in a world uh, where what is physical seems most obvious, that it is difficult. It is hard to put our trust in a non-visible God of the universe to provide when everything around us says that what you see, what is physical stuff, money, is what will fool you into believing what is most real beyond the realness of God's providence, where it's so easy and tempting to find our trust and our rest. And so he's just recognizing this is a difficult thing. And so verse 26, it says the disciples, they're even more amazed. And they said to each other, well, then who can be saved? Who then can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. And so we love that verse. All things are possible with God. But it's interesting to see the context that Truly trusting in God to actually provide for everything that you have and are and will be is possible only with God, not on our own. And so Jesus is challenging us all. Where is your trust? Where do you find your rest? Is it in your ability to provide for yourself with your work, with your resources, as we looked at the Sabbath or when it comes to the tithe? Or is it ultimately God whom you trust to provide? And we realize that a significant way in which we functionally answer that question is not with our words, but with our wallets. Because there's not much more that functionally demonstrates our faith and our trust and our rest in God than functionally trusting him with 10 per, the first 10% of the 100% believing he, got, uh, he gave it to us in the first place. It's not like it's, oh, I got 10% left over. I think we all could discern another way in which to use that. But it really demonstrates functionally like none other um, that we truly trust God. Pastor Timothy Keller, he says it this way. He says, if you cannot tithe, if the idea of giving away 10% appalls you, well then, money has more control over you than it ought to have. And I'll be honest, this was certainly the case for me. Um, Just kind of a little bit of kind of peeling back the onions of of myself. I've always been, you could say, like a worrier when it comes to money. And there's all kinds of, you know, causations for that that I've had to unpack in my mind and my heart that's for another day. But the reality is, when I first, uh, I, I didn't come to Christ till later in high school, and I remember my first ministry job uh, where I was uh, doing an internship in my home church in Columbia, South Carolina, right up the road from the Blues Bars, and I'm meeting with a guy, uh, 
guy in his younger 30s who's discipling me uh, by the name of Andy, and he challenged me on this idea of tithing. And so I was uh, making uh, $200 a week in my first job, and uh, I think after taxes it was like 160 bucks. And so I started tithing uh, $16 uh, a week, and I was so excited to go tell Andy that I'd stepped into tithing, and I'm sharing this with him. And he said, whoa, 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 how much are you tithing? I said, you know, $16. He said, is that the gross or the net? And, he's, and then he starts quoting Jesus to me, you know, and he's like, you know, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to Uncle Sam what is Uncle Sam's, but the first 10%, the first fruits is God's. I say, okay, so I fixed that, $20, whatever. And so it's, what's interesting is the reality of like that this challenge to really trust God with the first 10%, that it's almost like there's a strange irony, like the more that God provides, there's this strange upside down reality that there's this new test every time, like, did you really trust that I'm the one that provided that for you? That the, almost the more he provides, the more challenging it actually can sometimes seem to actually trust him by giving back. I've seen this in my own kids. We've tried to instill it early, knowing that the earlier you start this, the easier it is. And so our kids, um, for a long time, I mean, we, were, we have four, so we have to spread it out. So they have $2 a week. I know it's not a lot, but it was, uh, it was a good place to start for the chores and whatever around the house. And so they were tithing 20 cents off that $2, which for the most part was, you know, not a big deal to them. And then as they've grown a little older, like our oldest daughter, she started this little like paracord Etsy business where she sells like horse tack and dog leashes and reins and all this stuff online. And so she'll make like 100 bucks and all of a sudden 10% is like 10 bucks. And it's interesting that she finds it more difficult the more that God has blessed her with resources to be able to give back to it. So it's just weird. It's almost this like backwards reality. Um, I love the uh, story about John Maxwell. Many of you might know him from his leadership books, like 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, things like that. But before his kind of writing and speaking career in leadership, he was actually served as a pastor. And he tells a story of a friend of his who was asking him as his pastor to pray for him in his struggle for tithing. He said, his friend uh, said, you know, when I, when I made $50,000 a year, you know, tithing $5,000 a year was relatively easy. He said, now I'm making more than $500,000 a year and I'm having a really difficult time tithing on that. He said, will you pray for me? And he said, sure. And so John Maxwell, he prays, he says, Lord, I pray that you would reduce my friend's income back to an amount that he could comfortably tithe from. And so it's interesting that it seems, again, backwards, that the more God provides, the harder it can be, or and sometimes the less that seems to be there, the harder it can be. But with this idea that the more there is, the bigger the challenge might seem like a surprise to us, but it wasn't a surprise to Jesus because Jesus said how hard it is for the rich. For, and this is a relative statement. We recognize in our day and time that to a large extent every one of us would qualify uh, to, in, in the rich category, you could say. But how hard it is for the rich. How hard it is that the more we have, essentially, the more difficult it is to find rest that it's God who provides, not ourselves. But with man this is impossible, yet all things are possible. This specifically, Jesus says, is possible with God that we would trust him, that we would return to him the first 10% of the 100% that we believe he has given us in the first place, okay? And so we find God's definition of resting in him through the Sabbath, through tithing, and then one more big area where uh, rest comes into play that you, again, might not have seen coming at first glance as you think about this topic, 
we find rest when we recalculate our life towards forgiving. We find rest when we forgive. Ephesians 4.32 says it this way. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. And so we know that's a command. We know we're supposed to forgive as God has forgiven us. But if we're honest, the idea of forgiving someone sometimes feels the opposite of restful. In fact, the idea of forgiving can sometimes feel unfair, and unfair can make us, if we're honest, almost furious, depending on the measure of which the offense has taken place. And being furious leads us to all kinds of possible dark thoughts of revenge and payback and wrath, and then wrath. Well, wrath is definitely the opposite of rest. And so Romans 12, 19 gives us both this command and this comfort. It says it this way. It says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God's justice. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Meaning once again, God's definition of rest ultimately is all about trust. It's always about trust. Do you actually trust God to handle that injustice? Do you trust God that he will make things right, whether through their repentance and forgiveness or not, and he will settle things on his terms in his time? Do you trust God with the justice? I remember the story, true story, um, of one man on his forgiveness journey, we'll call him Craig, um, where he was reflecting on his process of forgiveness of a close family friend who had um, sexually abused his younger sister growing up. And he talks about that experience, reflecting on it, and he says that the root of bitterness grows in a soil of hurt. He says, talking about horticultural roots, they, they roots, they absorb and they store. And he said, my heart, it absorbed and stored hurt anger, hatred, and thoughts of revenge. And then catch this line. He said, love keeps no record of wrongs. He's quoting 1 Corinthians 13. Love keeps no record of wrongs, but bitterness keeps detailed accounts. And we know this if we've experienced it. Because what happens is, is when we hold on to, when we functionally put a grip on bitterness and unforgiveness, it's uh, the experience of like, like author Anne Lamont. She says that unforgiveness is like eating rat poison and then expecting the other person to die. It poisons us. My grandmother used to always say that unforgiveness, she would talk about this neighbor that drove her nuts. She said that unforgiveness is like carrying around a big bag of garbage. It's heavy and it stinks. And so forgiveness is, is about living out the prayer, essentially, that we pray on a regular basis here, the Lord's Prayer. We are praying for God. Well, again, the same truth, that it's impossible with man in many cases. It's only possible with God. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive 
our debtors. As we release that person from their trespass, as we release that person from their sin, as we release that person from their debt of offense on us, because what we experience when we release another person in forgiveness is the truth that as we put down the rat poison, put down the heavy bag of garbage, that we, in setting the captive free, setting the prisoner free, setting someone free, that we experience it is actually ourselves that we are ultimately setting free. We are releasing ourselves to the power of God of the unrest that comes in bitterness and offense when you forgive and you release and find rest for your soul through the power of God forgiving through you. Now, I'm not suggesting this is easy. In many cases, the levels and the layers are deep and difficult. But I would go to God's word again. Not in, I would say, when it comes to this, I say, I don't want to commit before you ministerial malpractice, where I, in some way, in a few verses or a few lines, oversimplify something. I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting God's word is actually stating it can and it will be done through the power of God alone. That both you might experience, regardless of the other person, that you might experience true rest for your soul in the yoke, in the way that Jesus designed this whole understanding of what the Christian faith is based on, and that is the through line of forgiveness. Because that is, as we really conclude this whole understanding, that is the way of Jesus. In fact, that is the ultimate definition of what we're looking at in rest in Matthew chapter 11, that it is ultimately God's forgiveness that is the highest reality, the highest truth, of what we experience and then can forgive others and trust him with every area of our life. Because that's Jesus' invitation to you and to me. He says, come to me. Come to me to receive my forgiveness, to be set free from every sinful act, every sinful thought, every bad thing you've ever done, every good thing that you failed to do. You are free of it in my forgiveness. Come to me, come to Jesus, he says, and experience what it says in Romans 10, that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will find rest for your soul. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. You are justified from the penalty of your sin. Rather, that's God's justice, that we don't pay the price for our own sin debt, that Jesus pays it for us on the cross. And it is with our mouth that we profess our faith and are saved. And we experience this result, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since you have been justified by Jesus' work on the cross through faith, we have peace. You have peace with God. You have rest for your soul both in this life and for all of eternity through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if that last point is not true of you, then the, next, the, the pre previous year are not going to add up. They're not going to make sense until you've fully given yourself over to the saving realities of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of all your stuff, that as you build into your own life the ability to forgive and to trust God in everything you do, your resources, your work, your not working, and, and everything in between. And so I would say for you here in the West or the East or at home, if you've not yet given your life over to Jesus, you can do that today. Um, given the context we're in, whether you're at home or here, the, the way to start that conversation is just simply to text the word Jesus to our church phone number, 217-875-3350. Uh, and, and we'll get that conversation started. And then with that, I'll just go ahead and say it. We're, we have a baptism celebration that's happening today at the lake. We have uh, more than 19 people getting baptized at the lake. And if you want to show up to that, that starts at 2. 
I'll be there early, I'll be there at one, and I'd be happy to talk with you about what that life looks like, and we could get you baptized right then and there. And so, all that to say, the, the prayer of St. Augustus, of the, uh, an early church father, excuse me, St. Augustine, he says it this way when it comes to all of this. He says, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and he says it this way, he says, and our heart is restless. Our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. Our heart is restless until it rests in the Lord. And so may you, for every area of your life, when it comes to this idea of sifting through the noise and sifting through uh, trying to find the rhythms and the rest that God has for you, that you would live not in our incomplete definition of rest and trying to get a little R&R knowing that that won't get us there, but may we live in the rhythm that's found in the rests that we would discover that in one out of every seven, one out of every 10, when it comes to the relationships in our life, through release of forgiveness and ultimately our rest for our soul in Christ alone. May we know the rhythm as we recalculate our life toward God's design of resting in him. And so to that journey, let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that at every turn that we look at that seems impossible with man, we know is absolutely possible with you. And so, Father, may we discover in the absence of working, in the absence of 10%, in the absence of bitterness and unforgiveness, in the absence of our own sin, by your forgiveness, may we experience and live in, not just in a moment right now, but each day that we live our lives on this planet in the rhythm of the rest that we have for our soul because it's not based on a time, a place, a dollar, or anything of that, but it's about 100% trust in you in all areas, made possible only by you, as your word promises, in the work of your Holy Spirit in us and through us. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus, amen.